0: There's there's some mechanism by which we understand a truth better from a story than we do from facts listed on a page.
1: Welcome to Tales with the Sales where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Carolyn Astvalk. She is the author of the contemporary Catholic romances Stay With Me, Come Back to Me, Ornamental Graces, and All in Good Time. Carolyn is the president of the Catholic Writers Guild, and she is a CatholicMom.com contributor. She lives with her husband and four children in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where it smells like either chocolate or manure, depending on wind direction. Welcome, Carolyn. We're so glad that you could join us today. And here we're going to jump on in, and I would love to hear what literature you've brought for us today.
0: Well, thank you so much, Jane. Um, I brought Tortured Soul by Teresa Linden, and Teresa has been a critique partner of mine for, oh my goodness, must be almost 10 years now. And she's probably influenced my writing more than most anybody else. So this book is actually a bit of a thriller and it's about a soul trapped in purgatory that is quote unquote haunting somebody. And so this little passage I can talk about later, but I think uh, really highlights the intersection of our uh, the physical, natural world, and the supernatural, and how um, integral they are. Dropping his head, he let out a miserable groan that shuddered through the house, rattling decorations, pictures, and the crucifix in the hallway. A long second later, he disappeared. Silence fell on the house, and a sick feeling in the pit of Jeannie's stomach. Jeannie sat upright and peered at the spot where he had just stood. Her gaze darted from corner to corner, shadow to shadow, but he was gone. Her muscles released their anxious tension, but her mind continued to race. Where does he go when he's not here? Why does God allow him to haunt me? Doesn't a soul have to remain confined to its final resting place? True, purgatory wasn't final, but still, it was beyond the grave, and he should stay there.
1: Ooh, (laughs) and he should stay there.
0: (laughs) He should. He's awfully creepy in this book. (laughs) Ooh. So, what Teresa does so well... I think is, and I think her tagline is like, um, things visible and invisible, basically. And so she brings to life a lot of the, the physical world melded with the supernatural, the spiritual world. And I think that's something that's really lacking a lot of times in our life today. We, And it's so easy to succumb to, to that, to think that all we see is all there is and live that way and not live as if there is something more than this, something greater, something we don't quite understand that's beyond us that requires an act of faith. So that's why this book in particular, I think, really, aside from its uh, fun creepiness, really brings that to life and, and makes you think about uh, what I hope I'm accomplishing when I write too, is that there's there's more to our actions, to our lives, than what we just see. There's a whole realm beyond that we need to account for and live as if we believe it exists
1: hmm yeah that that definitely is something that seems to be lacking in a lot of our modern conversations it seems to be a strictly materialistic worldview largely
0: right and, and again that's that's the world we live in it's so easy to live that way I can you know myself I from time to time I'll be reading little gospel reflection or something. And it really stops you like, well, how am I living? Do I really, really believe what I say I believe? Do I live that way? Or I just go on acting like, you know, this is this busyness and this, these things. And what's really kind of pettiness. Are, are they really the things that matter to me or not?
1: Oh, well, you just did a mic drop there. That it's not just encountering in the fiction, but what, how does it affect your life? Like, that you're encountering it in fiction as well as in scripture and saying hey what's the deal people and and this this is the reason i love starting this show with just straight up whatever it is my guest wants to read because it opens up just these amazing conversations and it and it exemplifies this point that fiction impacts life and culture so i want to dig a little bit deeper into this and could you tell me where you were at in your life when you encountered this, um, thriller story?
0: Well, I guess at this point I had been writing my own fiction for several years. And like I said, Teresa and I have been partners. We kind of discovered each other from the Catholic writers guilds uh, critique group. And at the time I was looking for someone that could read my writing that understood the faith elements of it because I, there were some women at the library group that were very helpful, um, but I wasn't sure that they would necessarily get what I was trying to do in my writing. And Teresa did. And so we were able to share stories, swap chapters and go back and forth. And so this was one of her, this must have been her, hmm, she's, she's got more novels than me. Maybe this is like her sixth or seventh book. I'm not even sure. And usually she writes more for teens, but this one is an adult novel. And it really just struck me her creativity and um, you know, the, the story just really does grip you because I think of the little bit of creepiness. And I always recommend it to people during the month of November, not only because of, you know, right after Halloween there, but the month of all saints. And it really is a perfect read for that time of year. So I was reading it chapter by chapter multiple times. So it probably stuck with me, you know, even more than it would if you just picked it up and read it and moved on to the next book. But, but even so, I think it really makes you stop and think about those who aren't with us any longer, that all these souls, the unknown souls that nobody is praying for, um, as well as the people in our own lives that we love that have passed. And have we done anything to help them on their journey? Do we remember them? Do we pray for them? Do we offer sacrifices for them? So it really, it really touched me in that way.
1: It's interesting because you wouldn't necessarily automatically think that contemporary romance and thriller would be ideal critique partners.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess you wouldn't. Um, But we work well together. Uh, Her books have like an element of romance. I don't know. I don't know if I really have much thriller in mind, a little bit of suspense, maybe. Uh, But I think because we both have the same goals, and we share the same faith. And I think whether we started that way or not, I think our writing styles are fairly similar in that the way that we uh, add description and dialogue and things like that, it just um, melded together very well.
1: So in a way, this wasn't just about accomplishing goals with your art and things like that. But it seems like the relationship itself was of great value to your writing.
0: Yeah, it is. It's, Writing is so solitary sometimes, and especially when you're in uh, kind of what I think of it as a little niche of this Catholic fiction, and it's easy to to feel very alone and like you're the only one doing this. And it's very helpful to have people that are supportive, both practically speaking with writing and with promotion and those types of things, but also spiritually that understand when you feel like, why am I doing this? Am I wasting my time? Because they encounter the same discouragement, um, but yet they still rely on the same faith and the same goal of being faithful to what you feel that God is calling you to do, what he called to write, despite the fact that you might not see a lot of immediate material success or uh, promotion, publicity, that type of thing that comes from it.
1: And so would you say that you would consider your primary audience Catholics, or do you see that you have a greater audience with your own work?
0: I would say primarily Catholics and Catholic women in particular, but there's a broader Christian audience too, because I'm definitely writing within the bounds of what is contemporary Christian fiction and follow the conventions of romance. And so there are definitely readers that appreciate the stories. And oftentimes I'll see a review by a non-Catholic that, oh, I, I didn't, it was interesting because I didn't know about these practices or I don't really know much about how Catholics Uh, live their faith or the devotions or things like that. Now, there's the occasional person that will set it down immediately because it's Catholic and that's not something they want any parts of. But I think by and large, Christian readers are happy to read stories of faith that reflect their own beliefs, but also maybe have something a little different that they were unaware of that's interesting to them.
1: Ooh, and here we're getting to another point where we talk about that, you know, fiction bringing about relationship and greater understanding, empathy, even if it's outside of your own life experiences
0: yeah that, that's something that's really beautiful about fiction and one of my favorite things and i know i've learned about other you know practices of the christian faith and understand uh, maybe more evangelical christian worldview than i would had i not ever picked up so many books written by authors that that espouse those beliefs and and live in that kind of community And I wouldn't stop them on the street and say, hey, how exactly do you think about, you know, but here I can pick it up and and read someone's internal thoughts as a fictional person, but still, you know, and learn more about that.
1: Absolutely. I just love the way that you word that. Well, and that's why I wanted to focus on fiction. I mean, I read a lot of nonfiction myself, but there's just something meaty about fiction in the world of art, in the world of creativity, that I feel is so necessary that we share. And in my experience, a lot of people seem to feel like once you stop reading aloud to your children, that fiction doesn't matter as much anymore. And they might not think that devoting time and energy to reading good fiction is a worthy pursuit. And how do you feel about that?
0: Yeah, I'm always sad when I hear... Uh, somebody, you know, say that, oh, they were discouraged from reading fiction because it's frivolous. It's a waste of time. And I suppose if you're reading actual garbage, (laughs) maybe it's a waste of time. But there's value in fiction, not only just for the sake of fiction, for storytelling, for entertainment, for relaxation, for escape, but there's so much more there. There's a wonderful quote by Dean Koontz in his novel, Ashley Bell. And I've read some of his novels, not a lot, but this one was about a writer, and I'm going to probably not get the words exactly right, but he says you should put more faith in fiction because it's really the only way you can come at the truth. Like, so, uh, he says like you can come at the truth sideways, which is the only way you really get at it. So again, I probably muddled that a little bit, but it, it lays out the fact that there's there's some mechanism by which we understand a truth better from a story than we do from facts listed on a page. Because I think we're hardwired for story. That's how we comprehend all sorts of things in life. And it's easier to internalize and for us to understand, I think, comprehend and um, then be able to not necessarily share that with others, but I guess internalize it and make it part of our broader understanding. It's just something that nonfiction can't deliver in quite the same way.
1: Well, and I know in the type of homeschooling that I do with my kids that they always encourage you to use narratives for learning history. And, and I think it goes back to that whole idea of how key storytelling is to us as human beings. And I don't understand why we, um, why we try to ignore that. And, and we try to say, well, if you're being a serious adult... Then you're not engaging in storytelling, and that's to me that's like saying to be a serious adult, I don't exchange oxygen for carbon dioxide. You know, <laughs> it just it, yeah. it's in our DNA. Story yeah. is,
0: it is. You think of two children too. How much do they love to hear stories about you or about themselves? The story about when they were born, or a story. Sometimes I tell them things from my childhood or teenage years that just are not big deal really just little things but they sort of latch onto that because it's a story and that's how they come to know me better
1: oh I, it, it makes me think of a story that my girls ask me over and over to tell them pretty much any time we eat out about when my oldest was probably about one and a half maybe two And we went, we were traveling to visit my in-laws and we stopped at this nice Italian restaurant because that's what was there on the side of the road. And we got our meal and, you know, it's me and my husband and this toddler and we enjoyed it and she was eating her spaghetti and she's always been, you know, a moderate eater. She doesn't gobble the whole plate, nor does she just pick at it, but she wasn't quite done and the waiter comes and takes her plate and she shoots him this look and goes, Hey, <laughs> and points at him as he's trying to walk away with her food. And he did bring it right back. And it's not, yeah. but this story just makes my kids crack up. And I think you're right that what they're encountering is something that tells them about themselves and about their experience and about our family culture and family history, even though it seems so inconsequential.
0: Right, it is. I think, and, and it's the relaying of the story, which is the part of the beauty of reading fiction aloud, that you get all the emotion, and there's some intangible aspects that aren't on the page that come across in the storytelling that, again, help you to know the storyteller and to know the story in a way that um, isn't just a list of a summary of facts of this first, this happened, which is how we teach children to write stories in the beginning, right? First this, then this. Here's the conclusion and that's the bones of it, but that's not all of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that they, you know, they tell us over and over that you want to show not tell. And it's almost like, even, even if you're reading nonfiction, that you're trying to get it to exist in your imagination. Sure. That it takes on this life of its own. And I, I see this with so many different creative pursuits. Um, I used to think that I had zero artistic talent, and then I went to one of those like paint-and-sip classes with a friend of mine for charity, and I was like, even if this looks terrible, I don't care. So we're painting, and I realized something that was really shocking, and I think it applies to writing as well, that the image that you're painting on the board, even if you are copying something, you're not actually copying that image. You are reproducing what is in your brain, which isn't that image. It's something else. And I think that when we read, it can be the same thing, that the writer might have had one intention, that this this book has one existence in the author's mind, and it has a different existence in your mind. And then when you read it aloud, it almost has a third existence and this is why like book clubs can be so fascinating because everybody is coming to the table with these different ideas and that you end up creating a new synthesis that you never you, you, you th- that there was no way that the author could have foreseen how that would come out
0: that's so true <clears throat> the couple times i've got to talk with book clubs that i've read one of my books i am just floored by things they will ask or things that they observe that i didn't even put together that <laughs> they and I've too I've said things to other authors like I love how you incorporated this and it really you know was resonant of this and they'll be like oh I didn't even intend that or I I didn't and I found that myself writing you know I didn't until I look back oh I didn't even know I did that but and two when I've had my books are on audiobook format and I know the first one listening back to it to hear the narrators inflection or how they delivered a particular line just like, oh, that's so much better than it was in my head. You know, I bring out the humor or different aspects of it that really bring it to life. And, and it's, it's so fun to hear, you know, other people's, you know, imaginations at work, really.
1: Well, and that's one thing that I've come to learn is this whole thing that creativity doesn't exist in a bubble. And even though writing or painting might be a quote unquote, solitary action, that art does not exist in a vacuum. It just doesn't. And yes, you can create art for art's sake and you can create it just for yourself, but it still has a life of its own. It does. And that when you get it out there and when you develop relationships with people and relationships with work, it's just, I I just geek out on it. What can I say?
0: (laughs) And I finally have kids that are of the age, the older ones, to be reading literature and things that I read you know when I was their age and it's fascinating to hear their takes on them just things that we've both read um there's you know a classic and slipped my mind but you know that I had read and I told my son oh I read it in high school I didn't didn't like it and he read it and he's like I loved it <laughs> and so why did you love it what is it that you got out of it that I didn't it's fascinating to hear that again you come to know somebody through their their interpretation their understanding of the art
1: mm. It's almost like art is essential to our experience. Maybe our creator is an artist. (gasps) Shock.
0: (laughs) I know. and That's part of the beauty of whatever you can create, big or small or, or, you know, writing or painting or woodwork or anything is we share in the creativity of God. And that's such a beautiful thing. It's just an opportunity to get a little glimpse of, of part of what he is.
1: And really, that's all we can handle is little glimpses.
0: (laughs) Yes, I imagine so.
1: (laughs) Well, let's talk about the little glimpses that you do in your work. So I've read one of your books, and it's a contemporary romance called Ornamental Graces, a holiday romance. And I know that you write a broad section of fiction. So can you tell me about the types of things that you're creating and putting out into the world?
0: I seem to be drawn to writing romances. And it's funny that I do that only because I didn't really read romance much before I started writing it. I went through a period of I loved reading when I was a child and a teenager. When I got to college, I was so overwhelmed by reading nonfiction that I didn't read any fiction. And then with my job after that, I spent so much time At night and in the day, reading newspapers and magazine articles and journals, I just, that was all I had room for in my brain. So so when I, when I resigned, when my son was little to be home with him and our other children, I went on a binge of reading fiction. I was like, I'm going to make up for all those years. And I just read and read and read. And I really didn't read much romance. Certainly it wasn't the conventional romance. It was more elements of romance in other books. But yet when I started to write, which is something I did almost on a lark, just let's see if I can do this national novel writing month thing. What I found I was writing was romance. Like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so then, you know, I went back to, to reading romance and, and learning about, you know, how to, to write what I was reading. So what most often comes out when I sit down and write is a romance, but it's usually one that has some um, depth to it, where the characters are growing in, I don't know if I want to say profound, they're very ordinary ways, but um, ways that make a difference to them in their lives, where they encounter the need for forgiveness or um, for some kind of change of heart or a conversion of some type, not necessarily a religious conversion, but a conversion of their, their spirit, I guess you would say, in a way, um, a turning away from something to something else. I usually talk about it in terms, at least when I'm on Catholics, as theology of the body fiction, because that's what has heavily influenced my understanding of romance um, in almost every way. So what Pope John Paul II had to say about the body and its significance for how we live and for how we communicate ourselves and our actions and, and the intent behind them all always plays into what I write. Whether I want it to or not, that's 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 what comes out. That's my worldview that seeps into my writing.
1: And for our listeners who are unfamiliar, could you just give the briefest explanation of how you view John Paul II's theology of the body?
0: I would say it's simply put, it's the meaning of our bodies that express who we are as man and as woman. And that there are inherent qualities and roles that arise from the fact that we are a man and woman and how we relate to another and most importantly how we love and and are loved by another person that's that's a really short distillation of his magnum opus but <laughs> there you go
1: that is so significant because how we give and express and receive love from one another impacts how we give and receive and accept love from God.
0: Exactly. And and so, so oftentimes, the, one of the beautiful things I think about reading Christian romances is seeing the love of God reflected in the characters. And oftentimes, you know, the the hero of the book loves in a way that we want to be loved by God, the way he does love unconditionally and freely and totally. And so those are the kinds of characters I like to see in romances, ones that are flawed for sure, but are striving to love in that way and recognize even subconsciously, but that, that is how they want and need to be loved by not only other people, but by thought about too.
1: And that's so different from a lot of what I've experienced in the romance genre at large. Yeah, that I, 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 read your book and I read a couple other romances because in working on my novel, I am clueless on how to write a love story. You want me to write a war scene? We're great. But you want me to write a love subplot? I'm kind of at a loss and feel awkward. And so they're like, well, you need to read what you're going to write. So I was reading some romance and it, a lot of it is, like we discussed at the beginning of the show, very materialistic. Right. Or the other thing it can be is what What shocked me is one of the books I was starting to read was a love story and this was written for YA and there was like relationship violence going yeah. on and it was expected that the reader would find this acceptable.
0: Yeah, that's just, you know, people, again, we talk about the influence of fiction. How do you want to influence people? You know, I want people to come away from a book of mine, seeing a relationship that is striving to be authentic, again, not perfect, but moving in that direction to reflect what true love, authentic love should be not, you know, accept something less than that that's detrimental to them. I've given a lot of thought to what I read a lot and I I can't just read now and and not think of the (laughs) mechanics of writing and why certain stories grab me, certain ones don't, why certain heroes are more attractive than others. And what I've come to realize is that the most attractive hero and the most compelling story to me is when it is self-sacrifice. And sometimes it's the heroine too, but it's always self-sacrificial love that always is the ones that actually grips me in the heart that I feel, the ones that, and I'm not much of a crier when I read, but those are the ones that'll bring me to tears. The self-sacrifice, which is perfect, right? Because I realize that's what's mirroring what Jesus Christ did for us. So that's what resonates in my heart. That's what I want to to convey in my characters that love is giving, you know, that it's it's sacrificial, it's full and total, and so compelling. Um, that that kind of you know that the first feelings you have of attraction and new love, that kind of feeling is is what God feels for us. Now for us as humans, that kind of wears off and you, you know, over waxes and wanes over time and things. But God loves us with that that exciting kind of I can't live without you love. That's what's so beautiful about it.
1: Mm. Yeah, that gives you something to sit and chew on. When you are talking about a hero that's self-sacrificial, for whatever reason, the one who come to mind for me is Samwise Gamgee in Lord of the Rings. And the thing about him, like he's one of my favorite characters of all time. I love Lord of the Rings. I know it's not for everybody, but I'm sorry. This is my show and I get to geek out on my favorite (laughs) book. Um, But the thing about Samwise Gamgee is he is a hero, but it's in simplicity that He's never looking for his own glory. He's always looking for service and love and just meeting the challenges that come to him head on. He doesn't go looking for them. And yet the way that he responds to them is with the gifts that he's given in that moment. Like he responds to the graces he's given in that moment. And I've never actually thought of it that way before. There's something to that. That his sacrifice, he never, he never knew what he was going to be called to offer and to do. But he just continued to love. And love carried him, not romantic love, obviously, but love carried him to be a hero. And that's so different from a materialistic view that says, essentially, violence is what begets heroism.
0: Right. Right. And what a great model he is of ordinary love. And I say ordinary just meaning it's common, but it's extraordinary. It shows you how extraordinary the ordinary is to doing those little things faithfully and just acting upon um, what you know to do, what is right. And, and the, those are the things, those little daily, seem like small actions are heroic, really.
1: Yeah. And here we go. You know, maybe we need that reminder because sometimes the ordinary is so hard to make it through on a given day.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it can be. And that's, you know, again, the beauty of telling stories and kind of revealing that these little things are big things when you, when you arrange them in a certain way and they're motivated by a certain thing and you look at the story, the story of a life you know those little things aren't so little anymore. They're a, they're a pattern. You know that um, we kind of become what we what we do and what we've how we've acted. That's becomes who we are.
1: You mean we don't grow in virtue instantly and overnight? <laughs>
0: if only that were true.
1: <laughs> I've had a lot of overnights and I ain't there yet. <laughs> Me too. So you get your readers. engaged in love stories that revolve around theology of the body. What impact are you looking to have on your readers in your work?
0: I hope that they walk away with a sense of how love isn't a feeling. I used to do Engaged Encounter years ago, and they were real big on saying that love is a decision, not a feeling. It's absolutely true, (laughs) because the feeling is temporary, but the action and the commitment is permanent. Um, but that, so there's all the wonderful things that I like to write about that exciting part of love that I talked about that you get in a romance novel because people are meeting and they're kind of on that precipice of making that commitment together. Um, but there's so much more to that and, and that you're, that relationship, both physically and emotionally, that intimacy has to abide by certain, I hate to say rules, but there's a certain way that we act that's consonant with how God created us that ultimately brings joy, even if in the short term it brings some suffering and some sacrifice that ultimately living in that way that you are love and being loved in a way that is compatible with how you were created by God, that that will ultimately bring joy. That's kind of a lot <laughs> to come away with. I also hope they just say, hey, that was a good book <laughs> and I enjoyed it. <laughs> but you know, that on some level, they recognize that there's there's something more going on there as well.
1: Mm. What impact are you hoping that your work would make on our culture at large?
0: I guess I'd say two things. One, the older I get, the more that I see that the only way to impact the culture is by changing myself. So I guess to the degree that something I write might, have a small influence somewhere in somebody's um, life. That would be one way. The other way which is more of a um, broader thing is I want to have people be aware that there is Catholic fiction out there. That is a thing that we have so many Catholics that are totally unaware that it even exists to so the extent that they do know it. They haven't moved beyond Tolkien, which is wonderful, but we won't have another Tolkien unless we have other Catholic writers trying to write <laughs> to the best of their ability. So yeah, I would think that I'd hope that people are aware that they can read stories that reflect their own worldview or their own experience of Christianity, that they can recognize themselves maybe a little more easily in in some other books.
1: That makes sense to me. Well, and the other thing is, like you were saying, the only way to impact culture is to change yourself. And I might be going out on a limb, but I'm betting that your creative work does change you
0: oh sure yeah people often say they they write the book that (laughs) they needed to to read or to experience so oftentimes as i'm writing too i there's you know whatever theme is in that particular book whether it's you know some of mine i'm thinking freedom or mercy um all of those kinds of things, there's, there's certainly lessons that I take away from them that, you know, the characters are learning, but, you know, what I'm are learning right alongside them, too.
1: Mm. It, it still just blows me away how, how all of these things, that, like you were saying, that people wonder if what they're doing matters. When mm-hmm. you're engaged in a creative work, you wonder if what you're doing matters. But you look at all the things that we've just listed off in the last few minutes right that are so important and they can come from this thing that we can fool ourselves into thinking is insignificant in the moment
0: yeah well and, you know when when you first asked about me picking a particular work and I think when I emailed you I said oh that's tough for me because I read these books and I internalize them but I forget them I forget the details But I bank on the fact that I have internalized them, that if I'm not remembering details and settings and scenes and character names, there's something I've taken away from that's now part of me. It was this external object, but it came in through my imagination. And now in some way, I'm a different person. It might be a very small way. You know, I don't think there's a lot of books I have that would say, just changed my life. But there's little things in there that now I've internalized that become part of my understanding of others and how I see the world and perceive other people.
1: That's great. And so even this is helping you in that struggle for greater virtue.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely.
1: So I would like to know what special things do you do to foster your creative process?
0: Oh, I wish I could say I had some great formula, but um, most of all, I think, and this is, not because I chose this by design, but because this is what's available to me. I allow myself the freedom to daydream. And so much of my writing was done with little children. Now I have a little bit older children, but it's always a crazy amount of busyness going on around me. So sometimes when I can't even get to the keyboard, I can always have a few moments to dream. And there's so many, I don't know how many of my books were written when I was riding around a baby, trying to get them to take a nap in the back seat. <laughs> And there were so many scenes that would come to my mind or details or this conversation. And then I would come home and scribble them down or eventually I got a little voice recorder <laughs> so I could do it while I was driving. I think that was before I had a smartphone, but um, I, I think that's still the beauty of it. Cause my daughter was asking me last night, you know, how far I was coming and she knows I have these three books, these three projects and You know, I realized I don't have, I have some of them somewhat written, but I said, Oh, but it's all worked out in my mind, which I think is the biggest hurdle because I've allowed myself all this space to, to when I have a few minutes or when I'm doing chores that don't require a lot of concentration, like doing dishes or like the driving or showering or something, I just allow my mind to go there and imagine these characters and what they're doing. And I think that's been the biggest part of the process. And I think not only does it help with the overall story, but I also um, I think it helps with dialogue, actually, just to see, watch these characters play out their scenes in my head and not feel like I'm forced on the page to, to come up with what this one says, and, but just to imagine them and how they speak and communicate with one another.
1: So they just exist in your imagination, They do. (laughs) As full people.
0: Yeah. And sadly for them, they never get to leave. So I revisit them years later and they're like, my story's done. (laughs) No, no, your story's never done.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Well, and I find it interesting that you started writing, or at least the way you were describing it, was in NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, which for those people who don't know is November. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
0: Right. Well, at the time, um, I had some free time. My husband had traveled a lot for work at that time, particularly during November. He would be gone Sunday through Thursday or something. And I had two children who were very small. And so I had gaps in the evening where, you know, I'd heard of National Novel Writing Month. And I had someone I went to grade school with. I haven't even talked to for decades. But she posted something about it on Facebook or something like huh? You know, I could try that. I've always wanted to write some fiction. I did a lot of writing for work, but it was always um, news releases, columns, um, newsletter articles, position papers, all kinds of nonfiction type things. And I'd only really dabbled in short stories, you know, in my early 20s maybe. So I thought, well, I'm just going to do this. So I needed an idea and I found this little newspaper clipping. It was about um, Lost Gold that uh, this is actually very interesting to me that this is still a story that I see crop up in the news from time to time. But there is a supposedly lost gold somewhere in Pennsylvania that was making its way um, to the Philadelphia Mint during the Battle of Gettysburg. And the gold has been lost. The men taking it were dead. I, anyway, there's supposed to be somewhere. I Sometimes I see Western Pennsylvania, sometimes up north. And my story that I was writing is set in Williamsport. But I had this newspaper clipping just about this hunt for this gold. And I thought, well, this is as good a place as any to start. <laughs> I had, you know, like a 200 word article, I'm like, okay, I'll make something of this. And I just sat at the computer and wrote and just spewed words out, not knowing if they were good or bad, or if they had any kind of story that was cohesive in any way. But that was the incentive I needed to do that. And so I at least came out with 50,000 words that I had to improve upon. And it took years to get that story to where it was cohesive and uh, not so poorly written. But um, just doing it was was the biggest hurdle. And that's that was the way I started. So I think National Novel Writing Month is is great for that, to just force you to sit down and write words. Just, as everybody says, you can't edit something you haven't written. Just write it. <laughs> then you can fix it.
1: I've actually... Participated in Nano twice. And the first one, I wasn't able to finish my manuscript. But the second one, which was in 2019, I did finish. And that's actually the novel that I'm working on right now. Um, And it turned into a series of four books that all live in my head. And so I feel you when you have all of these characters, and mine is 20th century historical fiction. So not only do I have the characters, but I have their world. Existing in my head. And and it's kinda tiring because it's like, I know your story, but I don't know how to tell it yet. And so I'm working on that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's a process. And mine is like, well, I think I can tell it, but I can't find time to get to write it. (laughs) That's the other hurdle. That's again why National Novel Writing Month is good. It makes you create some discipline in your life to write. (laughs)
1: Yes. And and I find it interesting that when I did it, I had young kids. And when you did it, you had young kids as well. And I mean, we're talking about a time in your life where you don't know if you have time to shower or, you know, and, and the idea of putting on makeup is just non-existent in my world. But I'm sure that some people struggle with that too. And yet you can find this time. It, it's almost like an inspired time in some ways.
0: It is. And it's not a time that drains you. I find that like last night I wrote, I don't know, five or 600 words for um, something I do with another author. It's a called a collective story. Where I, I wrote the first part, we handed it off to another author. It's going to go through six, seven authors and it'll be a short story when it's done. So it was just something I didn't need to invest a lot of time on. It's not, you know, a novel. Um, I just needed to to get it done. And and it the words came easily and I was like, oh, I just, I felt energized. Not, <laughs> not like my energy had been depleted, but like, well, I could go on and do something else now. So it's kind of counterintuitive. You think I've got all this work to do at the keyboard, but it's kind of rejuvenating work.
1: I find writing a really helpful way for me to organize my thoughts and I call it coalescing them. That I actually use a program called 750 words and you just word vomit 750 words every day and it gamifies it for you. You know, you can earn badges and things like that, but I find that I feel so much better yeah after getting it all out
0: I know and it's in fiction but in non I, I wouldn't call it non because I'm not ever publishing it but journal writing I you know from the time I was about 13 I kept a journal and I kept a daily journal I have them bagged in my attic and oh they're the most boring and embarrassing things ever written but I'll tell you they had such value and I still when I'm upset about something or there's something just aggravating me um To sit down and write it out longhand with my pen in cursive, page after page, everything looks better after I've done that. It's, Like you said, it organizes my thoughts, um, allows me to express them, and I always unfailingly come away feeling not that everything's solved, maybe, but it's always better after I've done that. Cheap therapy.
1: (laughs) It is. It is. I have the burning question. Did you ever publish that first nano book that you wrote?
0: Yes, that is. Um, let's see, one, two, three. Was it the third or fourth novel published? Rightfully ours. It was. It went under several names until it was cleaned up and changed. But yeah, it was published in uh, twenty twenty seventeen, I think, uh, with Full Quiver Publishing. So yeah, it it didn't look like it looked when it started, but the bones of the story were still there.
1: And so, how many years, start to finish, was that manuscript? Seven. You know, it's funny because that's also how many years it took Rhonda Ortiz for her first novel. And I'm looking at that and going, I started mine in 2019. We're going on three years. I've still got four years to go. Oh, uh,
0: well, but I wrote books after that, between the writing of that first draft and that publication. I wrote two novels in there. I wrote Stay With Me and and Ornamental Graces. But they were all you know, I I sort of left the first one behind for a while and moved on to this story. And the next story, actually, I wrote All in Good Time then to the first draft. Um, So I kept moving on to these other stories where I was kind of perfecting the process of writing. I just cleaned up those ones (laughs) before I went back to that first one, which probably because it needed more work than the other ones, you know. So every one of them, and I know some people leave manuscripts like that and don't publish them because they're not worth it. But I, I guess I just can't, the economy of the the situation bothers me. I thought I invested a lot of time and I'm going to fix this and (laughs) make it work one way or the other. So,
1: Right. And when you've had those characters living in your head for so long.
0: Yeah, they were trapped.
1: (laughs) You probably wanted to just let them live outside of your mind too. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that too. Yeah. Yeah. It's satisfying to see their story complete.
1: Well, and that's one thing I have to say I found interesting about um, when I read your book Ornamental Graces, is that these people did live eventful lives and, and that their experiences, and I don't want to give any spoilers or anything, but I'm reading it and a lot of the experiences that these characters had, I had either lived through or lived through with close friends of mine. And it was I have to say, other quote unquote clean or sweet romances that I've read had lighter themes. Mm-hmm. But when they have a light theme, sometimes you miss out on the humanity of the character.
0: <laughs> no, I, I like lighter theme books too, I guess, depending on the mood. But um, I always hope for something more to take away from there too. And, you know, ultimately, if somebody tells me that, characters in my book real realistic that's probably one of the best compliments they can give me to my mind because i want to write real people with real situations now they aren't real (laughs) their stories resolve maybe a little too well i wouldn't say quickly because i tend to write stories that drag out over years but maybe more neatly than they will happen in real life but again those experiences i hope resonate with people as real
1: Yeah, they definitely were, like to the point of tears. Oh. <laughs> um, but but that's okay, because that, like, like you said, we're going to experience the sufferings, but we're going to experience the redemption, the love, the mercy as well. And I think that's shown. So I have a genre question. Mm-hmm. This has been burning in my mind. I would like to know why the expected trope with romance is that it's all about the courtship, but not like the relationship post-courtship. I'm just curious.
0: For my part, I guess I would say it comes from that, all those bubbly, exciting um, attraction feelings. I think that, again, if I look hard at it, maybe that's reflecting, again, the love we hope to have, uh, imperfectly here, but ultimately from God. There are books, and I have one book that's written after a marriage, kind of a marriage that's, um, it's not, it's not a typical romance. It's, I usually call it just Christian fiction that uh, is a marriage that's struggling and trying to get back on its feet. But yeah, that's not a, that's not a romance. That's a, (laughs) that's a different genre. I think it's just that excitement factor. I think it's that we all want to relive that or experience for the first time. That kind of excitement, that kind of discovery of somebody, here's, here's this one person that knows me and that I know, unlike any other relationship in a different way that, that accepts all of me, my good and my bad. And again, unless I'm saying this, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm just reflecting back again what we, how we hope to love and be loved ultimately by God. And whether we know that or not, we have that heart-shaped hole that we're trying to fill. And I think... Romance is one of the obvious ways, in a, in a legitimate way, that we feel that in a temporal world. Ultimately, it's not going to completely satisfy, but, you know, like the sacrament of matrimony, it should be a reflection of what we ultimately will experience.
1: Both the love, the fulfillment, and the sacrifice. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I, unfortunately, they don't come without the sacrifice. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, they don't. But it's all worth it. Mm-hmm. And what do you think sets your work apart from the rest of the genre?
0: I don't know that I'm completely unique because you'll find other people writing what I write, but there are not a whole lot of people writing contemporary Catholic romance. Um, It's a handful. And so I think that's what makes it different. And then to the extent that I'm trying to make it, you know, as you say, a little deeper or more reflect that theology of the body, it's not... Uh, just a sweet romance that has, you know, a rosary thrown in or some little other kind of incidentals that the characters are Catholic. But I think that the characters, uh, whether they're Catholic or um, not at the time of the novel, still kind of um, reflect that kind of Catholic worldview ultimately in how they live and believe.
1: And what do you have coming down the pipe for us?
0: well i have three books that i'm working on and i maybe foolishly committed to somebody a date for a third of them so now i have to to have three out these are the ones that have been living mostly in my head so the first is a a contemporary romance called lost and found that uh, i hope is kind of lighthearted in that the um hero is actually kind of an amateur bigfoot hunter and uh but a lot I, love I love it. I love it. That's maybe absorbed from all the uh, real life Bigfoot talk that I've had in my household. But also deal a lot with um, people's perceptions of themselves, their own bodies, their physical, um, I don't know, I tell, issues that people have surrounding their weight and their attractiveness and their appearance. So that's kind of what's suddenly going on there. And the next book um, is an odd book, I'm not sure how to classify yet, that um, I was calling The Light Between about, because I guess you'd ultimately say it's a second chance romance, um, but there should be some intrigue in there as well. And the third one is the young adult book that I've been really anxious to write because I already wrote a short story related to it uh, called On Graffiti Road about um, a young woman uh, who changes schools late in high school and her experience of going from, well, she hasn't changed school. She's going from homeschooling to public school and some challenges she encounters. And, um, let's see, how could I say it? She has a little experience, a bad experience with the occult <laughs> and, but there'd be some romance in there as well, not related to the occult. <laughs> so those are the, those are the three lined up. And then if I get this finished, there's a historical book that I've been, um, had in the back of my mind for years because I'm put off by the amount of research it will require, but eventually I yeah, will get to that.
1: <laughs> what time period is that one?
0: Uh, it's um, 1890s Johnstown flood in Pennsylvania. So I, I have a lot of, I visited that area because it's not far from where I live um, several times. So I, I have some knowledge of it, but having not written day to day details of that time period, I know I have a lot of work to do.
1: Yeah. That's why, in that second NaNoWriMo, when I completed, the book that I completed is a 20th century historical fiction, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into.
0: Yeah, you only don't know what you don't know until you start writing.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. And I don't have any like background classes in creative writing or anything like that. And so, you know, I'm learning craft as I go, and I'm listening to these other historical fiction novelists, and they're like, well, you know, I usually spend one to two years on research. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I'm very good at research, actually. I was in debate in high school. You know, I've got mad nerd credentials here. Um, So it's not the act of research, but it's the volume of research to make it real because like you said in the catholicism in your work you don't want to be just throw in a rosary and call it good look it's catholic you don't want to throw in a tin beer stein and say oh look it's 19th century you know and call it a day because it's so flat
0: right that's where all those little beats that i don't think about when i write contemporary like picking up a mug or something. Well, then I have to think, Oh, well, in 1890s, at this um, level of income, what kind of beverage holder would they have had? And how do I, f-? you know, it's just so many little details to make it right to make it authentic.
1: Yeah, I think it makes it a little easier that I'm doing 20th century. But and and the fact that it's four books, I'm like, it's four books in three places I've never been to. In a time period I've never lived through. I'm like, what was I thinking? This is <laughs> this is madness. But at the same token, it's if if you stop and you stop looking at the work and you just do the work, then I think it gets enjoyable. It does.
0: And sometimes just spewing things out with inaccuracies that you can then go back and <laughs> correct. It's helpful, too, because it's so easy to get bogged down in the research and then then you get so off track, it's hard to, to get back on again.
1: Right. And especially when you're like me and you're not just doing research, but that you're learning craft and you're writing and you're editing and you're revising. It's, I think I need to compartmentalize and like do one for a while and then do another. And I don't exactly know what order those boxes go in. But that's one of the great things about doing this podcast is I can talk to people that know what they're doing. And one of the
0: beautiful things about writing is you can do it your own way. (laughs) There's, you can hear all kinds of suggestions in different ways and then take what you like from this one and not the other one and what works and suits you best and do it your way because I don't think any two authors processes are identical we all kind of come at it just a we bit differently
1: which is probably a good thing yeah or else we wouldn't have a variety in our world
0: right yeah stories are unique to the person who wrote them
1: what would be the easiest place for us to access the stuff you've got going on
0: my website is the easiest place to find all the possibilities. So that's carolynasfalk.com. And I have a book tab there. And then you can see because the books are all available on paperback and ebook and audiobook, you know, Amazon, but other places as well. So that's the simplest one stop shop.
1: All right. Well, we have a one stop shop for adventure for you right now. It's time for the rando round. Are you prepared? I am ready. All right, I've got my list of 100 over-caffeinated questions, and you get to pick your dice. We have pink sparkles or tie-dye. Oh, tie-dye. (laughs) Tie-dye, yes, yes. I'm so excited about the tie-dye. I I have a thing for tie-dye. It's very joyful. (laughs) All right, so let's see what we rock and roll today. Why don't we try 71? 71. What are three books you would recommend?
0: Okay, let's see. I'm just going to come with what comes at the top of my mind. Stephanie Lansom's Lansom's, uh, In a Far Off Land, which is a historical romance set in Hollywood. Um, It's fascinating. You talk about historical research. She's done a fantastic job. It's uh, it's a, a sort of retelling of The Prodigal Son. And it's beautifully written. She's very talented and hardworking author. So that would be one right there. Um, let's see, let's see. The Grace Crasher by Mara Farrow. It is a contemporary Catholic romance that is much in the style that I write, so I guess I identify it with very well, but it's um romance with a lot of humor and also a lot of deeper work going on there with the characters as well. Third, I'm going to say Elizabeth Byler Juntz is, which book of hers should I pick? The Bright Unknown. She is not Catholic, but the characters in this book are, or at least one is, and um, it's just, she's a gifted writer too. Beautifully written story that starts in um, an insane asylum, actually, and is moving and powerfully written. Really, the books I've read by her are all, I could say that about all of them. Um, So I would say, yeah, The Bright Unknown by Elizabeth Byler Young, who actually happens to be kind of local to me. There
1: you go. Very (laughs) exciting. And you don't read a whole lot of stories that take place in a mental institution. So that's, and and it it was kind of funny, I was looking up what the intention for the month was to pray for, and it's actually for mental health. Ah, Oh, okay. There you go for November. Yep. And I mean, mm-hmm. this is going to air in December, but y'all can, y'all can pray for people with mental health struggles. Anytime. Yep. <laughs> Anytime. Cause we could use it. Yep. Um, let's see what else we come up with here. One hundred. You're in your van. You hear Journey's song, open arms, come on the radio. What do you do?
0: I leave it on and reminisce about my youth. <laughs> Although I don't know, um, that song has a particular memory for me, but I know that this faithfully was a theme from my high school prom. So,
1: who doesn't love journey? I mean, seriously, there's a reason I added this question to this list. (laughs) All right. 31. Describe the color yellow to a blind person.
0: Yellow is brightness and balm. And my daughter always has a fondness for buttery yellow. So I'll say buttery because it can be smooth and rich and delicious.
1: (laughs) Ah, I love it. And the last question I ask all of my guests is, what gives you hope right now?
0: I think the... The natural world around me gives me hope now and and all the time. I find that anytime I am wildly uh, dejected or depressed or anything, if I go outside in the beauty of God's creation, I am always hopeful. There's constancy about the world and the natural beauty and the cyclical expression of death and growth that always provides hope. You see it more in spring, but I think I see it all year round, so I would say that that the natural world always brings me hope and does today.
1: I'm grateful for this time I got to spend with the talented storyteller and thoughtful woman, Carolyn Astfalk. You can find her works at CarolynAstfalk.com. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, Read stories that matter because you are living one.